Let us now open God's Word that He would teach us. As you can see, there is a, quite a list of Scripture readings. Believe it or not, we will bring all of these together. We'll start with Genesis 17. Verses 1 through 14. All of these readings are in connection with the topic for the afternoon, which is the question of infant, uh, infant baptism. And, uh, and that's in Lord's Day 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is the, the Lord's Day that we'll be reading. And so we read these passages in connection with that. Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. I also give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall, circumc you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." Next we turn to Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 7, and we see in this uh, passage something of the place of children within the people of God. Deuteronomy 12, beginning in verse 1. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land that the in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. 
But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Next we turn to the prophets, to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 through 26. Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness, For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Finally, one more text, and that's from Romans chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 4, verse 17. Paul is making an argument in these verses, and it's helpful to mention it so you can see it there ahead of time. The argument he's making is that salvation has always been by faith. It's never been by birth. And you can see this in in this text. So Romans 3, verse 21 through 4, verse 17. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith, In Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say that Abraham our, fo- our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. 
For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as right, for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all, of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who are to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to, to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us, of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of God, whom he believed... God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. So far, the word of God. Let's also now open the Heidelberg Catechism. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith. And we find ourselves, somewhat at random, in Lord's Day 27. And we're looking at the second half, which is question and answer 74. There the question is, should infants too be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism as sign of the covenant... They must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the New Covenant. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the goal for this afternoon is to consider the question that the Catechism puts forward should infants be baptized? Or maybe more properly, since we already know the answer, as a church we practice infant baptism, the question is, 
Why do we practice infant baptism? The question of infant versus adult baptism is probably the single greatest division between Protestant, evangelical, gospel-believing, Bible-following churches. And it has persisted since the time of the Reformation to be an issue that even smart, godly, uh, believing Christians have not been able to resolve and to come to agreement on this issue. And it ought to be said from the outset then that when we, when we express our position, our, our stance on infant baptism and our reason for that, we don't do that to question the faith of other Christians who, who do not agree with that. It's entirely possible to be a true Christian and still be wrong even on an issue uh, like baptism. This is a discussion that ought to happen rightly between brothers. Uh, and here it's important that we understand the difference between the marks of the true and false church and the marks between true and false uh, Christians. Uh, with the marks of the church, as, as we have them in the Belgic Confession, we have the marks of this is the church to which I belong, this is the church to which God calls me, and we look for these standards, the pure preaching, the pure administration of sacraments, and the presence of church discipline. We say that's the church we belong to. That's where God wants us to be. But that doesn't mean that we regard all those in any other church as therefore not even being Christians. And in fact, the Belgic Confession has a list of the marks of Christians. And it's good to keep that in mind. Let me read that uh, list. It's from... Uh, Article 27, if you wanted to look it up. No, I believe 29. Uh, in Article 29 of the Belgian Confession, the marks of the Christians are as such, they believe in Jesus Christ as the only Savior, they flee from sin and pursue righteousness, they love the true God and their neighbor without turning to the right or left, and crucify the, their flesh and its works. Although great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their life. They appeal constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of Jesus Christ, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in Him. That's the mark of a Christian. And it's good that we keep that in mind as we engage in this uh, discussion on infant baptism. It's not to say that the issue does not matter but that we are able to acknowledge the faith, the genuine faith, the Spirit-given faith of those who may disagree with us on, on this issue. That being said, this doctrine does matter. It does have implications. Uh, it isn't only about baptism as such. It touches a great deal of other parts of Scripture and how we understand those other parts. And that's why often it really doesn't make much of a difference if you're engaging in conversation with a Baptist brother or sister to argue simply about the question of baptism itself. Uh, you can point to household baptisms in the New Testament, or uh, conversely, a Baptist can point to uh, the connection that's often made between believing and, and baptism, and that connection is there in, in the New Testament as well. Pointing to those texts often doesn't make much of a difference because there are significant assumptions behind 
our understanding of baptism that, that play into which position we take. Baptism is the surface issue. Uh, underneath it are several major doctrinal differences. For example, obviously our, our disagreement over infant and adult baptism shows that we have a different understanding about the meaning of baptism itself. It means different things to different, uh, different people. Uh, we disagree about what it means and, and what it declares. But there are a number of issue, other issues even beyond baptism. Uh, the place of children in the church and in the covenant. Do, do children belong in the church? Are they members of the church? Are they part of the covenant? Even among Baptist groups, and, and in fact even among Reformed groups, there are differences of opinion on, on that question. Which leads to another question, the meaning of the covenant itself. Uh, that's certainly a real point of disagreement. What is the covenant and, and who's included in it? It's a huge question that surrounds this whole issue of infant versus adult baptism. And our, our disagreements about that question are rooted in yet another question uh, that's often forgotten or, or overlooked, and that's the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, how much of the Old Testament is still normative for us as Christians? It's a big question. It, it has a big effect on what we believe about baptism. Uh, most Baptists would say... Anything that's not explicitly repeated in the New Testament is no longer normative for us. I would argue, together with most Reformed uh, believers, that whatever is not explicitly or at least implicitly changed remains normative for us as, as Christians. Uh, the New Testament, in other words, didn't come to completely abrogate or dispose of the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. That's the words that the Lord Jesus himself used. I didn't come to abolish the law, uh, but to fulfill it. Which means that there, were, there are some things that were shadows that are replaced with the reality. Things like the temple, things like the sacrifices, they all pointed forward to something. And now that that something, Christ, has come, those things have passed away. But there are other things that are not shadows in the Old Testament and were never meant to be shadows in the Old Testament. Uh, so, for example, the, the Ten Commandments, they're not meant as shadows that pass away. They're meant as an abiding uh, rule, an abiding way of, uh, of life. It's the abiding will of God. Or the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, that wasn't meant as a shadow that's an abiding uh, truth. Uh, the nearness of God to His people. We sang in, in Psalm 145 earlier, the Lord is near to all who call upon Him. That wasn't meant as a shadow. It's an abiding uh, truth. So it's too simplistic to say the Old Testament is shadows, the New Testament is reality. No, some things are shadows, other things are not. Some things pointed forward and meant, were meant to be passing away, and others uh, we're not. And that question between the Old and New Testament is related to one more question, possibly the most important of all, which has to do with the way of salvation in the Old Testament. Was salvation by birth or was it by faith? Uh, 
it's easy enough for us to point to circumcision and say, look, children were circumcised in the Old Testament and, and therefore we should baptize them in the New. Most Baptists would respond, yes, but uh, the blessings from God came by birth in the Old Testament. They come by faith in the New Testament. And to be honest, many Reformed believers even think of the Old Testament in those, in those terms. And so a Baptist would argue, this is why Jews would circumcise their children, but we should not, circum- or we should not baptize uh, ours. Well, I hope to show you, and I hope you followed the argument in, in Romans 3 and 4, that that is simply not true of the Old Testament. Uh, and that's not what the New Testament itself teaches about the Old Testament. Salvation has always been by faith in both Old and New Testament. And that makes makes a difference. It has implications for what circumcision meant and how we we think about it. So so there are these these many, many underlying issues behind the disagreement between uh, infant and adult-only baptism. It isn't a simple matter of trying to deduce what the New Testament teaches or what most likely happened in the New Testament church. Uh, at the moment, there's, there's no absolute proof either way. A Baptist will say, show me a, a verse where it says uh, that an infant is baptized. I would say, show me a verse where an infant's born and is not baptized or, or an, a child grows up and is only baptized in adulthood. That's, that's what they must prove. And, and there's no verse that way either. In fact, uh, there's, there's not a single mention of an infant even being born in the, in the New Testament church. The, God, the, the book of Acts follows the frontier of the mission field. And, and even in our own mission fields, you find largely adult or household uh, baptisms. Because that's the, the nature of a mission field. And that's all we get to work with uh, from Acts. We're not going to answer the question then by, by trying to argue from, from that evidence... We want to look at what's the underlying thinking that Scripture teaches us uh, to, to adopt. Uh, so the goal for this afternoon, and the time is quickly slipping away, the goal for this afternoon is, is to summarize the biblical answers to some of those questions and then hopefully to deal with, with just a few objections. Uh, in all of this, the spirit of, of conversation with our Baptist brothers and sisters ought to be there. It ought to be one of, of love and fellowship in spite of disagreements and a desire to do as, as Paul commands us, I preached on this several weeks ago from Philippians, uh, to work to come together in one mind. Uh, the goal is not to agree to disagree. It's not to brush over our differences, but to work to come to agreement, and that ought to be our efforts uh, in, the, in the friendships that we have with, with other Baptists, to, to keep the conversation going, to work towards agreement. Uh, and of course, uh, this is a much longer discussion than could ever be uh, crunched into a single sermon, and so I promise I will respect the clock, I will not go on forever, and there will be no uh, Eutychuses falling out of windows if all goes well. Uh, I want to focus the bulk of our attention on, on the question of the relationship between the Old Testament and, and the New Testament. I do believe this is the root of the disagreement. And, and it's an area where we as Reformed believers also often do not um, get things right. And that matters because more than half of your Bible is the Old Testament. 
And if you don't know how to read it properly and understand its significance for your life, your faith will obviously take a toll as a result. In, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, Paul told Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's good for us to recognize that when Paul wrote that, he was writing about the Old Testament. There was no New Testament at the time, other than the part that he just finished writing. Uh, it's good to understand he, he's, he's saying those things about the Old Testament. Uh, the same is true of what he writes actually right before that verse. Uh, so 2 Timothy 3 verse 15 where he says, uh, To Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation uh, through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. He writes that about the Old Testament. So it's a tragedy that so many contemporary churches don't preach from the Old Testament. Paul says they're inspired by God they are able to equip you, and they, they, um, they make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. Uh, there was a, a church just down the road from where I lived in Hamilton, a New Testament Baptist church is, is its name, and I often wanted to go in there and say, hey, you know, there's another half of the Bible yet that you're not preaching from. Uh, it wouldn't have been very charitable, but uh, it, the fact is, the Old Testament is very often overlooked. And often there are questions surrounding, can we even preach from it? Is it even uh, relevant? Paul clearly takes the stance that the Old Testament is relevant and able to make us wise for salvation. Now sometimes we speak of Christ as have, has, as have coming to fulfill the Old Testament. In fact, Christ spoke of himself doing, doing that. But fulfill does not mean abrogate or Abolish. In fact, that's, that's exactly the point that the Lord Jesus made. I, I have not come to, fulfill, to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, in the same way, when Jesus was baptized, he said to, to John the Baptist, um, this needs to be done in order to fulfill all righteousness. That doesn't mean abrogate righteousness or abolish righteousness or that righteousness is no longer relevant for us. It means he was doing what righteousness requires. Uh, he means the same thing when he speaks of fulfilling the law. He's doing what the law requires. It doesn't mean that the law no longer applies. Now that does mean that there, there are certain things that were meant as shadows and only shadows which will now give, a, give way to future fuller reality. Uh, the temple and the sacrifices and the ceremonial laws were all meant to point forward to Christ. And now that Christ has come, we do not keep those things. Uh, we recognize them to be shadows. However, not everything in the Old Testament is a shadow. I mentioned the, the Ten Commandments. 
Uh, I might also mention the promises that God makes concerning his uh, salvation, the promises of a Messiah, the, the many, many texts that speak of God's steadfast love and, and his faithfulness to the covenant. Those aren't shadows. Those are ongoing realities, same as, as what we sang in, in Psalm 145. Uh, these are promises from God that we are not supposed to regard as, as shadows. They're things that abide. Uh, just because we live in the New Testament age then doesn't mean that everything has, has changed and, and that we can't trust anything in the Old Testament as enduring. Some things have changed. Some things remain. And the way to judge that is to judge, is this a shadow pointing to Christ or is this a, an abiding truth about God himself? Now, now, most Baptists recognize that. That's why, um, for example, the Psalms are still regularly preached. Proverbs is still uh, regularly preached. Um, and yet, we do often treat the Old Testament as a whole in that fashion. We say, uh, when an argument comes up, we say, yeah, well, that was the Old Testament, as if it's an entirely different religion or even an entirely different God. Uh, but of course, that's certainly not how Jesus himself presented the Old Testament, nor any of the disciples, nor certainly not the Apostle Paul. They all appealed to the Old Testament in support of the gospel and the doctrines of grace. They, they root that in the Old Testament. And they saw the work of Christ and the building of the church as a fulfillment of exactly what the Old Testament said would happen. And, and therefore, a continuation of the, Old Test, of the Old Covenant promises. The, the New Covenant is not an entirely new thing. It's a continuation of all the things that God promised in the Old Covenant. Well, here's where this matters for baptism. Uh, most Baptists and many Reformed believers wrongly assume that the Old Testament had a completely different way of salvation than the New Testament. Uh, that in the Old Testament, you just were born into the covenant, and, and that's how you were saved. But in the New Testament, you now have to have faith, and, and so the covenant is the group of those who have faith. Now, if you distill this out, it becomes clear pretty quickly how, how wrong this thinking is. Uh, what do you do with someone, for example, like King Ahab, a member of the covenant, a circumcised Jew, who it says did more evil than any person who came before him and who died very clearly under God's judgment? And of course, he's only one of hundreds of examples the Old Testament is full of words of judgment against people who were born into, into the covenant. Uh, and judgment because of their unbelief and their disobedience. An entire generation died in the wilderness because of unbelief. Uh, faith has always been necessary in, in Old and New Testament. Uh, it's, it's obviously more, there's more to salvation than simply being born as a Jew. And, and that's the point that Paul makes in Romans 3 and 4. Circumcision was never what made a person right before God. Even Abraham was circumcised after he believed and not before. Circumcision was a seal of, of his righteousness, but it never guaranteed 
his salvation, nor did his children's circumcision guarantee theirs. Esau too was circumcised, and yet God says, Jacob have I loved, Esau I have hated. Uh, Salvation then has always been by faith in the promises of God. That's true in Old Testament and, and New Testament. When we rightly understand that and take that to heart, then the meaning of of circumcision as sign of the covenant also becomes uh, more clear. Children were circumcised as heirs of God's promises, but that circumcision never meant that they didn't have to believe or or that they couldn't uh, be removed from from the people of God or were automatically somehow saved. Uh, They still had the responsibility, just like us, to believe. That's why we also read from uh, Jeremiah 9, and and there are many, many other passages like it. Uh, In Jeremiah 9, consider the things that the people were commanded to do, uh, to know the Lord. It says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast or glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Of course you had the responsibility to know your God in the Old Testament. That hasn't changed at all. Uh, They were commanded to reflect the Lord. He says, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. They were expected to reflect those things. And they were called to be circumcised not only in the flesh but also in the heart. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those, who are un- all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt mentions Judah, the covenant people of God. The son, uh, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and the house of Israel, he says, are uncircumcised in heart. They were expected to have changed hearts. In fact, that's that's the meaning, or that's that's yeah, that's the meaning of the phrase to be born again. Being born again is not a reality that, that is limited to the New Testament that only came about in the New Testament. That's why uh, Jer- that's what Jeremiah means when he speaks of circumcising uh, their hearts. Uh, that's why when the Lord Jesus was explaining this to John or, or to Nicodemus in John 3, and Nicodemus didn't understand it at all when Jesus said, you have to be born again, uh, Jesus didn't excuse him and say, yeah, I know, I don't, I don't expect you to understand this. This is New Covenant stuff. You've never heard this before. No, Jesus says to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Being born again was not a new reality, or it certainly shouldn't have been to the Jews. They should have known better. So, here's the point. Circumcision was never a substitute for circumcision of the heart. Unbelieving Jews were cut off, and believing Gentiles were grafted in. Uh, the, The difference between the Old and New Testament in that respect is only the scale that the the gospel has gone global in the New Testament and many, many more Gentiles 
are, are being added in. But it was always possible, and there are many examples, Rahab, uh, Caleb, examples of Gentiles who were grafted in to the people of God because of their faith. Uh, so when we recognize that in, in both covenants, salvation has always been by faith, then we can recognize that the new covenant is not an entirely new or different thing than the old. It's an extension of the old covenant. And if we understand that, then we can't simply dismiss circumcision as something that belongs to the old covenant, as as an old covenant reality that has no implications for us today. As if then salvation was by birth, And now it's by faith. That simply isn't true. If we understand that, then we can turn to the question, why? Why then did God have the the Israelite children circumcised? And what did that circumcision mean? It clearly didn't mean that they were saved by virtue of their birth. What then did it mean? Uh, In other words, what place did the children have in the old covenant and is there any reason this is a key question is there any reason to believe that that's different now in in the new covenant it's very clear that children were were heirs of all the promises in the old testament yes even though salvation was by faith not by birth yet they were heirs of all the promises Uh, we read a few verses from genesis 17 that that show that Uh, The Lord said to Abraham, I establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you to be your God and their God as well. Uh, One thing that teaches us is that God establishes his covenant not with individuals only, but also with their families. It's the way that God has built the world. Families are always the unit on which society turns and and the unit through which faith is passed on to the next generation. And God consistently makes His covenant with families, with individuals together with their families. And so in the Old Testament, even though salvation was by faith, the children of Abraham were still received as members of the covenant because they were part of his family, and as such, they had the responsibility to believe, the obligation to believe. Uh, and, and so as such, they not only received the sign of the covenant, but they were full participants in covenant life. Uh, they were present at the Passover. Uh, they were together with the rest of the congregation when the blood of the sacrifices was was uh, cast out over the the congregation. Uh, You can read about that in Exodus 24, and it explicitly mentions that the children were there as well. Uh, We also read from Deuteronomy 12, where the people were commanded to worship God with their sacrifices and to rejoice in God together with their households. Uh, The children, as members of the covenant, were expected to rejoice in God together with their parents. And so, if the nature of of salvation has not changed from the Old Testament to the New, and it hasn't, and if the New Covenant is an extension of the Old and not a replacement of the Old, and if children of 
if children were full members in the covenant then, expected to learn from their parents to love the Lord, think of Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach your children to love the Lord your God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if being born again, too, was a requirement for all individuals in the old covenant, just as it is in the new, then is there any reason to believe that the children would be included in the Old Covenant and not in the New? Is there any text that teaches us this, that, that in the New Covenant, the blessings of the Covenant no longer belong to the children the way that they did uh, in the Old Covenant? Well, there is no text, uh, and, and no Baptist can point to any such text. Instead, what you see consistently in the New Testament is that children are included together with the rest of the church just as they were in the Old Covenant. In Acts 21, Paul bids farewell to the the congregation in Ephesus. And it says explicitly, the whole congregation together with their wives and children went down to the water to say goodbye to Paul. They were understood to be part of the church. Uh, When Paul writes to the, the Ephesians, um, he addresses the whole congregation as saints in the very beginning of the letter. And later on, he, in that same letter, he writes directly to the children. He acknowledges them as part of the, the church. So he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now what is, what is in the Lord supposed to mean if it doesn't mean that those children belong to the Lord? We're familiar with the text that's mentioned in our, in our form for baptism where the Lord Jesus uh, took the little ones in his arms and, and blessed them. And that blessing makes no sense at all if they're not members of the covenant. And in that same text, the Lord says, Let the little children come to me, for to such belong the kingdom, belongs the kingdom of heaven. When he says, to such... Uh, he obviously includes those children themselves, which is why he blesses them. Uh, Likewise, in Acts 2, we're familiar with this text as well. Peter tells the Jews there that the promises are for you and for your children and for all who are far off, whoever the Lord God calls to himself. Let's look at one more text in, in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, verse 14, you're welcome to, to turn there if it helps. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. There, Paul is teaching about mixed marriages, uh, where, where you have a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse. And he tells the believers not to divorce their unbelieving spouse because, he says, the unbelieving husband is sanctified because of his wife, And the unbelieving wife is sanctified because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. There's no reasonable way to accept that statement that your children are holy, except to understand that they belong to the Lord. Uh, It's true, the text does also say that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified. It's the same word, holy, sanctified. In the Greek, it's the same it's the same word. Uh, and it's true that we obviously wouldn't baptize an unbelieving spouse. And that's the, the counter-argument that, that your Baptist friends will give. 
However, that's consistent with the nature of the covenant. It comes with the obligation to believe in proportion to the ability to believe. Uh, The children belong, but you don't have that expectation of a full-grown faith in an infant, uh, but that expectation will come with age, with ability. It was the same thing in the Old Testament. You would circumcise your children, but if a Gentile adult wanted to be part of, of the people of God, you wouldn't just circumcise him, you would expect him to believe in that God. If he was still worshiping his other gods, he would not have been uh, circumcised. And so it's true, there is a sense in which the unbelieving husband or wife is, is sanctified uh, by the believing one, but still needs to show a response of faith before being received as a member of the covenant in good standing. Uh, because the same principle applies with the children. Uh, the responsibility to believe comes together with the ability to believe. It's in proportion to that ability. And so Paul clearly says that the children, in spite of that one unbelieving parent, are sanctified in the Lord, and therefore they're received as members of the church. And as they grow up, just as in the old covenant, their parents have the responsibility to instruct them in the ways of salvation. Straight out of Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach them to love the Lord. Uh, There's no indication anywhere that that has changed. Paul tells uh, the, the parents in Ephesians 6, uh, fathers, uh, raise your children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. In other words, you raise them as Christian children. Uh, there's no indication that that has changed. And you can only imagine the kind of controversy that there would have been in the New Testament church if that had changed. It would have been a major change in the way that these Jews, because they were largely Jews, in how they thought about their children. It would have been a controversy requiring a great deal of teaching. Now, one of the uh, difficult questions that this, uh, that this leads to is, doesn't this make the covenant impure? Doesn't this mean that there might be unbelievers within the New Testament covenant, unregenerate people within the covenant? And I would argue, yes. Yes, it does mean that. And that's what we call covenant breakers. It was that, that was the case in the Old Testament. And you see the same thing in the New Testament. Uh, you think of uh, Hebrews 10, verse 29. The author there speaks of people, clearly New Testament people, who will ultimately be under judgment. He says, again, this is Hebrews 10, verse 29. He says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? It's a covenant breaker, a member of the covenant who is not regenerate. What we're talking there about there then is is covenant breakers. Not everyone in the covenant is also elect. Uh, These are different categories and we ought not to confuse election and covenant. They, They are not the same category. The covenant includes the elect, but it also includes people that turn out to be unregenerate. The same was true in in the Old Testament. Uh, Not everyone in the covenant will respond in faith, uh, only the elect. 
And so we should be careful not to confuse these two categories. In, the, in Scripture, both Old and New Testament, the covenant, God's covenant, is real and visible and objective. In the, in the Old Testament, you knew who was in the covenant. And the same is true in the New Testament. Uh, then it was with the family of Abraham and the Gentiles who attached themselves to that family. And in the, in the New Testament, the same is true. It's with the smaller family of Abraham and all the many, many Gentiles who have attached themselves visibly to it in the visible church. That's the covenant. There may be regenerate people outside of that covenant. There may be unregenerate people inside uh, that covenant. Uh, the covenant is God's means of working out election. And on the final day, those who do not belong will be removed. But we should not equate the two uh, categories. Let me summarize then uh, where we've gone so far. We're coming close to, to our conclusion We've seen that not all of the Old Testament is, is merely shadow. The law of God has, changed, has not changed. The character of God has not changed. The way of salvation by faith alone has not changed. Uh, we've seen that just as, just, then, just as now, salvation is by faith, not by birth. And yet we've seen that even in that context of salvation by faith, children were still included in the covenant, and therefore receive the sign of the covenant. And so there's no reason to believe, then, that that has somehow changed in the New Testament. And in fact, we've seen many texts that show us that it clearly has not changed. They are received as part of the church. Now, again, it should be emphasized, that does not mean that they are automatically saved. Uh, but it does mean that the promises are theirs. You could even say in a sense, salvation is theirs. It belongs to them. They are in the place where God gives his salvation. But it's there together with a responsibility and an obligation to believe, to respond in faith. The same is true in Old and New Testament as far as that goes. Having said all that, then we come to the question of, of baptism itself, the, the surface issue. If children belong in the church as much in the New Testament as in the Old, and if they're members of the covenant and heirs of the promises in both Old and New Testament, should they then receive the sign of the covenant? The reason this is, is so hard and so difficult for many Baptists to accept is because baptism has a picture of, of washing and of repentance and forgiveness. And, and many Baptist, Baptist people understandably do not want to declare that their children have repented when, when obviously they're, they're too young to even understand what repentance means. And they don't want to imply that these children are, are regenerate. They don't want to suggest that there's some other way to salvation apart from faith in Christ. Well, here's where we differ with our Baptist brothers simply on the meaning of the sacrament itself. For us, baptism is not a sign of being forgiven on account of your repentance as such, but on account of your membership in the covenant. That's where God bestows His grace. If you're an adult, then you will be brought into the covenant on condition of repentance. That repentance needs to be there. 
But as a child, that obligation is not there yet. It will grow with the ability to believe. That obligation will come in time. But you're baptized as a member of the covenant, not as an act of repentance as such. And so because our children belong to God and are sanctified and we know them to be uh, children of the covenant, we give them the sign of the covenant which is theirs. Uh, And that declares, that sign declares that all the promises of God are theirs. They belong to them together with the obligation to believe, to have faith. God has not changed and the way of salvation has not changed either. And we should be careful always then to communicate the gospel to our children in those terms. Uh, in, in some uh, extreme Baptist circles, uh, and certainly this has been more the case in the past, the children of believers were regarded as essentially belonging to Satan until the day comes when they, were, when, when they repent. My, my dad and my uncle grew up in a Baptist home where that was still the the understanding, uh, you are Satan's children until the day when you repent. And, and you can imagine the agony that, that children go through. They love the Lord. They worship God together with their parents. And yet they're told, your faith is fake. You can't believe yet. You're still just a child. And, and you're not a child of God. It's no wonder that, that in Baptist circles, faith, membership in the church has a much less enduring uh, quality than it does in, in the Reformed churches. The faith in Reformed churches is passed on generally much more through the family than it is uh, in Baptist circles. And, and that's understandable if the children are being told that they don't even belong to the Lord. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to teach our children these things? And many Baptists today understand that. That's why they have dedication ceremonies. It's a growing uh, trend. They recognize Scripture doesn't teach us to think about our children in that way as, as somehow belonging uh, to Satan. Having said that, of course, it's true we must teach the gospel to our children. It's not wrong to speak of evangelizing your children. It just means giving them the gospel, teaching them uh, the gospel of Christ. Uh, And so we must call them to a faithful response to God's promises. But we don't do that as as if they are presently outside of of God's covenant or outside of God's kingdom. Instead, we call them to Christ because Christ has called them to himself. We call them to Christ because Christ has laid his claim on them. And they they have the joy and the privilege of of living out of that claim. Let's never forget the the tender words of of our Savior. Let the little children come to me. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Instead, so, so instead we call them to a Christ who has already claimed them for himself And we teach them a gospel that is already theirs. It already belongs to them together with the obligation to respond to that gospel and believe through faith. So brothers and sisters, let us then call our children indeed to the Savior who has already bought them with his blood and already made them part of his people. That's why we baptize them. And this is also then how we call them to faith. Let us always also pray 
for our children, that the Holy Spirit would give them that new birth, that that circumcision of heart uh, that is necessary for entrance into the kingdom of God. We pray that God would work the faith in them that is a response to the claim he has put upon them. This is our gospel that we give to them. Amen.